welcome to Fast Asleep. We're really glad you're here. You have found us today ready to bring you the conclusion to The Door in the Wall by H.G. Wells. Oh, jump back to part one if you haven't already heard it. You know now that our character, Lionel Wallace, has found his nirvana behind a green door. H.G. Wells may have found his at the very young age of eight. Mm-hmm. When, yeah, he was confined to his bed with a broken leg. His father opened a whole new world for Herbert George when he brought home book after book from the local library. Mm-hmm. Young Bertie, as he was called, found other worlds and other lives in those books, and he devoted himself to them. And his desire to write was born then. Well, tuck in everybody and enjoy the door in the wall. Do you remember me as a kid at St. Athelstan's? Rather. I didn't show any signs, did I, in those days of having a secret dream? And then he looked up with a sudden smile. Hey, did you ever play Northwest Passage with me? Ah, no, of course. You didn't come my way. Well, it was the sort of game, he went on, that every imaginative child plays all day. (laughs) The idea was the discovery of a Northwest Passage to school. The way to school was plain enough. The game consisted in finding some way that wasn't plain, starting off uh, 10 minutes early in some almost hopeless direction and working one's way round through unaccustomed streets to my goal. And one day, I got entangled among some rather low-class streets on the other side of Camden Hill, and I began to think that for once the game would be against me and that I should get to school late. I tried rather desperately a street that seemed a cul-de-sac and found a passage at the end. I hurried through that with renewed hope. I shall do it yet, I said, and passed a row of frowsy little shops that were inexplicably familiar to me. And behold, there was my long white wall and the green door that led to the enchanted garden. Oh, the thing whacked upon me suddenly. And then, after all, that garden, that wonderful garden was not a dream. He paused. I suppose my second experience with the green door marks the world of difference there is between the busy life of a schoolboy 
and the infinite leisure of a child. Well, anyhow, this second time, I didn't for a moment think of going in straight away. You see, well, for one thing, my mind was full of the idea of getting to school in time, set on not breaking my record for punctuality. I must surely have felt some little desire, at least, to try the door. Yes, I must have felt that, but I seem to remember the attraction of the door mainly as another obstacle to my overmastering determination to get to school. I was immediately interested by this discovery I had made, of course. I went on with my mind full of it, but I went on. It didn't check me. I ran past, tugging out my watch. Oh, I found I had 10 minutes still to spare, and then I was going downhill into familiar surroundings. I got to school, breathless, it is true, oh, and wet with perspiration, but in time. I can remember hanging up my coat and hat. I went right by it and left it behind me. Odd, isn't it? He looked at me thoughtfully. Of course, I didn't know then that it wouldn't always be there. Well, schoolboys have limited imaginations. I, I suppose I thought it was an awfully jolly thing to have it there, to know my way back to it, but well, there was the school tugging at me. I expect I was a good deal distraught and inattentive that morning, recalling that I could and what I could of the beautiful, strange people I should presently see again. Oddly enough, I had no doubt in my mind that they would be glad to see me. Yes, I must have thought of the garden that morning just as a jolly sort of place to which one might resort in the interludes of a strenuous scholastic career. I didn't go that day at all. And the next day was a half holiday, and that may have weighed with me. Perhaps, too, my state of inattention brought down some impositions upon me and docked the margin of time necessary for the detour. I don't know what I do know is that in the meantime, the enchanted garden was so much upon my mind that I could not keep it to myself. I told, what was his name? Uh, a ferrety looking youngster. We used to call a uh, squiff. Oh, young Hopkins, said I. Ha, Hopkins it was. I did not like telling him. I had a feeling that in some way it was against the rules to tell him, but I did. He was walking part of the way home with me. He was talkative, and if we'd not talked about the enchanted garden, we should have talked of something else, and, well, it was intolerable to me to think about any other subject, so I blabbed. Well, he told my secret, and the next day, in the play interval, 
I found myself surrounded by half a dozen bigger boys, half teasing and wholly curious to hear more of the enchanted garden. There was that big uh, faucet. Do you remember him? Oh, and Carnaby and Morley Reynolds. You weren't there by any chance. No. No, I think I should have remembered if you were. A boy is a creature of odd feelings. I was, I really believe, in spite of my secret self-disgust, a little flattered to have the attention of these big fellows. I remember particularly a moment of pleasure caused by the praise of Crawshaw. You remember Crawshaw Major, the son of Crawshaw the composer, who said it was the best lie he had ever heard. But at the same time, there was a really painful undertow of shame at telling what I felt was indeed a sacred secret. Oh, that beast Fawcett. He made a joke about the girl in green. Wallace's voice sank with the keen memory of that shame. I pretended not to hear, he said. Well, then Carnaby suddenly called me a young liar and disputed with me. And when I said the thing was true, I said, I knew where to find the green door. I could lead them all there in 10 minutes. Carnaby came, became outrageously virtuous and said oh, that I would have to and bear out my words or suffer. Did you ever have Carnaby twist your arm? Eh, mm -hmm. Yeah, then perhaps you'll understand how it went with me. I swore my story was true. There was nobody in the school then to save a chap from Carnaby. Though Crawshaw put in a word or so, Carnaby, Carnaby had got his game. I grew excited and red-eared and a little frightened. I behaved altogether like a silly little chap. Um, and the outcome of it all was that instead of starting alone, for my enchanted garden. I led the way presently, cheeks flushed, ears hot, eyes smarting, and my soul one burning misery and shame for a party of six mocking, curious, and threatening schoolfellows. We never found the white wall and the green door. You mean? I mean, I couldn't find it. I would have found it if I could. And afterwards, when I could go alone, I couldn't find it. I never found it. I seem now to have been always looking for it through my schoolboy days, but I've never come upon it again. Did the fellows make it disagreeable? Oh, oh, beastly. 
Carnaby held a council over me for wanton lying. I remember how I sneaked home and upstairs to hide the marks of my blubbering. But when I cried myself to sleep at last, it, it wasn't for Carnaby, but for the garden, for the beautiful afternoon I had hoped for, for the sweet, friendly women and, the, oh, the waiting playfellows and the game. I had hoped to learn again, oh, that beautiful forgotten game. I believed firmly that if I had not told, well, I had bad times after that, crying at night, oh, and wool gathering by day. For two terms, I slackened and had bad reports. Do you remember? Oh, of course, you would. It was you, your beating me in mathematics that really brought me back to the grind again. For a time, my friend stared silently into the red heart of the fire, and then he said, I never saw it again until I was 17. It leapt upon me for the third time as I was driving to Paddington on my way to Oxford and a scholarship. I had just one momentary glimpse. I was leaning over the apron of my hansom, smoking a cigarette, and no doubt thinking myself no end of a man of the world. And suddenly, there was the door, the wall, the dear sense of unforgettable and still attainable things. We clattered by, I too taken by surprise to stop my cab, until we were well past and round the corner. And then, oh, I had a queer moment, a double and divergent moment of my will. I, well, I tapped the door in the roof of the cab and I brought my arm down to pull out my watch. Yes, sir, said the cabman smartly. Uh, well, well, it's nothing, I cried. My mistake. We haven't much time. Go on. And he went on. Well, I got my scholarship, and the night after, I was told of that. I sat over my fire in my little upper room in my study, in my father's house, with his praise, oh, his rare praise, and his sound counsels ringing in my ears, and I smoked my favorite pipe, a formidable bulldog of adolescence and thought of that door in the long white wall. If I had stopped, I thought, I should have missed my scholarship. I should have missed Oxford, muddled all the fine career before me. Eh, I began to see things better. I fell musing deeply, but I did not doubt then that this career of mine was a thing that merited sacrifice. Those dear friends and that clear atmosphere 
seemed very sweet to me, very fine, but remote. My grip was fixing now upon the world. I saw another door opening, the door of my career. He stared into the fire again. Its red lights picked out a stubborn strength in his face for just one flickering moment, and then it vanished again. Well, he said, and sighed. I have served that career. I have done much work, much hard work. But I have dreamt of the enchanted garden a thousand dreams and seen its door, or at least glimpsed its door, four times since then. Yes, mm -hmm. four times. For a while, this world was so bright and interesting. It seemed so full of meaning and opportunity that the half-effaced charm of the garden was, by comparison, gentle and remote. Who wants to pat panthers on the way to dinner with pretty women and distinguished men? I came down to London from Oxford, a man of bold promise that I have done something to redeem something, and yet, well, there have been disappointments. Twice I have been in love, and I will not dwell on that now, but once, as I went to someone who I know doubted whether I dared to come, I took a shortcut at a venture through an unfrequented road near Earl's Court, and so happened on a white wall and a familiar green door. Odd, I said to myself, but I thought, huh, this place was on Camden Hill. It's the place I never could find somehow. Well, you know, like counting Stonehenge. The place of that queer daydream of mine. And I went by it, intent upon my purpose. It had no appeal to me on that afternoon. I had just a moment's impulse to try the door. Three ste steps aside were needed at the most, though... I was sure enough in my heart that it would open to me. And then I thought that doing so well, it, oh, it, it might delay me on the way to that appointment in which I thought my honor was involved. And afterwards, I was sorry for my punctuality. I might at least have peeped in, I thought, and waved a hand to those panthers. <laughs> but I knew enough by this time not to seek again belatedly that which is not found by seeking. Yes. That time made me very sorry. Years of hard work after that, and never a sight of the door. It's only recently it has come back to me. With it, there has come a sense as though some thin tarnish had spread itself over my world. I began to think of it as a sorrowful and bitter thing that I should never, never see that door again. Ah, perhaps I was 
suffering a little from overwork. Perhaps it was what I've heard spoken of as the feeling of 40. I don't know, but certainly the keen brightness that makes effort easy has gone out of things recently. And that just at a time, well, with all these new political developments, when I ought to be working, odd, isn't it? But I do begin to find life toilsome. Its rewards, as I come near them, cheap. I began a little while ago to want the garden quite badly. Yeah. Oh, and I've seen it three times. The garden. No, the door. And I haven't gone in. He leaned over the table to me with an enormous sorrow in his voice as he spoke. Thrice. I have had my chance thrice. If ever that door offers itself to me again, I swore I will go in out of this dust and heat, out of this dry glitter of vanity, out of these toilsome futilities. I will go and never return. This time I will stay. I swore it. And when the time came, I didn't go. Three times in one year have I passed that door and failed to enter. Three times in the last year. The first time was on the night of the snatch division of the tenant's redemption bill on which the government was saved by a majority of three, you remember? No one on our side, perhaps very few on the opposite side, expected the end that night. And then the de debate collapsed like eggshells. I and Hotchkiss were dining with his cousin at Brentford. We were both unpaired and we were called by telephone and set off at once in his cousin's motor. We got in barely in time and on the way, we passed my wall and door, livid in the moonlight, blotched with hot yellow as the glare of our lamps lit it. Oh, but it was unmistakable. My God, cried I. What, said Hotchkiss. Nothing, I answered, and the moment passed. I've made a great sacrifice, I told the whip as I got in. They all have, he said, and hurried right by. I do not see how I could have done otherwise then. And the next occasion was as I rushed to my father's bedside. Yeah, to bid that stern old man farewell. Then, too, the claims of life were imperative. But the third time was different. It happened a week ago. It fills me with hot remorse to recall it. 
I was with Gurker and Ralph's. Now, it's no secret now, you know, that I've had my talk with Gurker. We'd been dining at Frobisher's, and the talk had become intimate between us, the question of my place in the reconstructed ministry lay always just over the boundary of the discussion. Yes. Yes, yes, that's all settled. And it needn't be talked about yet, but there's no reason to keep a secret from you. Yeah, thanks. Yes. Thanks, but uh, let me tell you the story. Then, on that night, things were very much in the air. My position was a very delicate one. I was keenly anxious to get some definite word from Gurker, but was hampered by Ralph's presence. I was using the best power of my brain to keep that light and careless talk not too obviously directed to the point that concerns me. I had to. Ralph's behavior since has more than justified my caution. Ralph's, I knew, would leave us beyond the Kensington High Street, and then I could surprise Gurker by a sudden frankness. One has sometimes to resort to these little devices. And then it was that in the margin of my field of vision, I became aware once more of the white wall, the green door before us, just down the road. We passed it, talking. I passed it. I can still see the shadow of Gurker's marked profile, his opera hat tilted forward over his prominent nose, the many folds of his neck wrap going before my shadow. Oh, and Ralph's, as we sauntered past, I passed within 20 inches of the door. Hmm, if I say good night to them and go in, I asked myself, what will happen? Oh, and I was all a tingle for that word with Gurker. Oh, I could not answer that question in the tangle of my other problems. They will think me mad, I thought. And suppose I vanish now. Ooh, amazing disappearance of a prominent politician. That weighed with me. A thousand inconceivably petty worldlinesses weighed within me in that crisis. And then he turned on me with a sorrowful smile and speaking slowly. Here I am, he said. Here I am, he repeated. And my chance has gone from me. Three times in one year, the door has been offered me. The door that goes into peace, into delight, into a beauty beyond dreaming, a kindness no man on earth can know. And I? have rejected it. Redmond, it is gone. Oh, how do you know? I know. I know. I am left now to work it out.
to stick to the tasks that held me so strongly when my moments came. You say I have success. This vulgar, tawdry, irksome, envied thing. Oh, I have it. And he had a walnut in his big hand. If that was my success, he said, and crushed it and held it out for me to see. Let me tell you something, Redman. This loss is destroying me. For two months, over ten weeks nearly now, I have done no work at all. Yeah. Except the most necessary and urgent duties. My soul is full of inappeasable regrets at nights when it is less likely I shall be recognized. I go out. I wander. Mm -hmm. Yes. I wonder what people would think of that if they knew a cabinet minister, the responsible head of that most vital of all departments, wandering, alone, grieving, sometimes nearly audibly lamenting for a door, for a garden. I can see now his rather pallid face and the unfamiliar, somber fire that had come into his eyes. I see him very vividly tonight. I sit, recalling his words, his tones, and last evening's Westminster Gazette still lies on my sofa containing the notice of his death. At lunch today, the club was busy with him and the strange riddle of his fate. They found his body very early yesterday morning in a deep excavation near East Kensington Station it is one of two shafts that had been made in connection with an extension of the railway southward. It is protected from the intrusion of the public by a boarding upon the high road in which a small doorway has been cut for the convenience of some of the workmen who live in that direction. The doorway was left unfastened through a misunderstanding between two gangers, and through it he made his way. My mind is darkened with questions and riddles. It would seem he walked all the way from the house that night. Well, he has frequently walked home during the past session. And so it is, I figure, his dark form coming along the late and empty streets, wrapped up, intent, 
and then did the pale electric lights near the station cheat the rough planking into a semblance of white? Did that fatal unfastened door awaken some memory? Was there, after all, ever any green door in the wall at all? I do not know. I have told his story as he told it to me. There are times when I believe that Wallace was no more than the victim of the coincidence between a rare but not unprecedented type of hallucination, uh, a careless trap. But that indeed is not my profoundest belief. Mm -mm. Uh, you may think me superstitious, if you will, and foolish, but indeed, I am more than half convinced that he had, in truth, an abnormal gift and a sense, something, I know not what, that in the guise of wall and door offered him an outlet, a secret and peculiar passage of escape into another and altogether more beautiful world. At any rate, you will say, it betrayed him in the end. But did it? Did it betray him? There you touch the inmost mystery of these dreamers, these men of vision and the imagination. We see our world fair and common, the hoarding and the pit. By our daylight standard, he walked out of security into darkness and danger and death. But did he see it like that? Good night.